Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. I'm John Luchansky. I'm actually not the normal uh, teaching pastor, nor am I a pastor. Uh, I, I am a, a partner at the bridge here. My wife and I have been going here pretty much since since the beginning, several years ago. And on occasion, for some reason, uh, Heath asked me to to lead us through wherever we are, say in Romans, like we are today, or on other topics. And this is still a first for me today that while I have taught before, this is the first time that I don't have to use a handheld microphone. For whatever reason, every time I do it, the wireless mic is broken, so I don't know what I'm going to do with my hands today. So I'm so used to having to hold them the whole time and get tired. Um, so I do know a lot of you, um, and that's exciting. If I don't know you, I'd love to meet you. And if you need one thing to get a conversation started, it's probably basketball. I love basketball. Actually, uh, Adam, wherever he is, I know he's here. He's in Children's. He and I uh, coach a 9- and 10-year-old team together. We saw Tommy there yesterday supporting one of the kids he knows. Uh, and I still love basketball despite the fact that we lost on an overtime buzzer beater yesterday. So it's taken me 24 hours to get over it, but here we are. I'm thankful to have something to take my mind off of that. Um, so we spent the last few weeks studying Romans 12, where we see a call to respond to God's mercy and grace by dedicating our lives to him, using the gifts that he has uniquely given to us to honor him and build one another up. We're called to a community marked by genuine love and should be able to care for one another as a family. Romans 12 also gives us great wisdom on how to treat those who are not Christ followers, reminding us that we're all natural enemies of God because of our sin. Yet despite our sin and his purity, he pursued us. In that vein, do not pull away from those who might disagree with us or have even wronged us. Rather, pursue justice with the same heart as God. We should be moved by this example of grace to show the same compassion and kindness to an evildoer, praying that they see their evil and giving them the possibility of peace and freedom. We must work to put our identity in God and also work to disciple one another to do the same. And with that in mind, we closed last week with prayers of surrendering things in our lives that are separating us from God. And that posture of surrender to God's will is relevant again this week as we move forward into Romans 13, which starts with Paul prescribing what our attitude should be toward government. Now, knowing that that's our topic for today, you know that I am doing what many wise people say not to do, whether you're at the office, at family reunions, on first dates, or really wherever, and that is mixing religion and politics. Here we are, and it becomes much clearer why he so readily offered me this teaching opportunity. <laughs> Full disclosure, when I picked this date, we didn't know specifically where we would be in Romans, but I'm still not convinced he had done the math and that I fell into a trap. So <laughs> I say that because the relationship between man and government is philosophical. It's something that's been studied and argued from the ancient Greeks really until today, and there's very limited resolution in fact, one of the things that I typically do when I teach is I'll go and read much wiser pastors' sermons on the same exact passage, hoping to take a lot from their notes and help me put something together. So one of the guys I rely on often is John Piper, who has a great website that catalogs really everything he's ever taught on. You literally just put in Romans 13, and boom, there it was. I was like, perfect. What a great outline I can use. I read his intro, and it says, in the next four weeks, we will be going through Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. I was like, well, I've got half an hour. So uh, I say that because while in Romans 12, we're talking about man's relationship with his fellow man, now we're talking about man's relationship with a much larger power. It's a bigger concept. It's much harder to wrap our minds around immediately. So 
I hope and pray that you don't walk away unsatisfied, but if you do, know that I can relate even after a few weeks of preparation. Uh, There's no easy way through this passage, but saying all that, I'm very excited to share with you where God and his word have led me in the last few weeks. So before I go any further, please join me in prayer, and then we'll dive into the text. God, we're just uh, thankful for who you are, that you love us, that we can freely study your word and be in your presence and uh, we just, I just pray that you would uh, speak through me and speak clearly that it would be your words and not mine and that we can ultimately just learn more about what your call and your purpose is for our lives. Amen. So if you could, uh, please turn with me to Romans 13. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up on the screens behind me. We also use the YouVersion Bible app and you can follow along there as well by searching in the events tab under the bridge Montrose. So, okay, we're going to start just by reading all the way through one time. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, there's a lot in there. So hopefully your eyes didn't glaze over the first time through. But if you're like me, this really doesn't settle right away. And really it starts with the title of this passage, which is Submission to the Authorities. Putting aside the specific context aside for a second, how many of us truly like to submit to anything in wrestling, and I'm looking at Damon because I think he knows this, the term submission describes yielding to the opponent, either by tapping out or saying something to the opponent or to the referee. It's an admission of defeat. Submission feels like it is at least sacrificial, if not downright losing. So I can guess that not many of us like to lose. Similarly, how many of us like someone having authority over us? In what might be an unexpected reference, I think Tupac sums up our attitudes pretty well. He says, I know how to bow down to authority if it's authority that I respect. Probably to a different beat than what I just said, but we'll move past that. We're fine following along with someone or something until it goes against what we want or believe, and then we seek freedom from that authority. Verse 7 alludes to this, pay respect to whom respect is owed, honor whom honor is owed. And that's one of the key questions we'll be trying to answer today. Does government always deserve our respect or honor? It doesn't really feel that way. A Winston Churchill quote hits home. He says, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Everyone here has experienced being ruled by parties and politicians that they don't like. 
When is the last time you looked at a politician and thought or said, that is not my leader? For some of us, that might be a current event. The natural worldview is to deny a leader if we don't share their platform. We want the government's values to align with our values, and when that does not happen, it feels wrong. Regardless of who is in charge at any given time, I think there are clearly some benefits to having an organized government that I want to acknowledge. It helps maintain order in society. It has public programs that build and enhance infrastructure, provide education and health care, meet the needs of the disadvantaged, and create a sense of civic pride. These are just a few things. There are many others. But our system is far from perfect. And we don't have to try very hard to observe where certain things and people are broken. It feels like governments are revelations of what is wrong with society more often than what is right, and that as a society, we are given choices of lesser evils, or maybe not even a choice at all, as opposed to some obvious right and wrong in the eyes of God. Even more specifically, you might, your mind might already be going to, what about Hitler? What about Stalin? What about the Hutu party in Rwanda? How could God possibly allow them into power and to commit such evil? This is one of the questions we want to try to answer. Does God really appoint every government? And if so, how do we reconcile divisiveness, polarization, abuses of power, injustice with a God who is loving and merciful? Also, what is our role relative to authority? Do we always submit? And if not, where do we draw the line? If we see abuse of power, if we see injustice, how do we respond? With those questions in mind, let's use the text to find some answers. As a starting point, I want to add some context around the readers of Paul's letter. They were, of course, the Romans. Many early Romans, many early Roman converts to Christianity were Jews who were not used to submission to authority other than God. They, at a minimum, might see such submission to the civil government as infringing on their character, as an offense to them. As a maximum, they might see it as unlawful in accordance with the laws of the Old Testament. Common questions that they had at that time were, do we follow any man before God? Do we even pay taxes? Many Jews would be likely to answer this, no, we don't. They would instead look to the Old Testament law, like in Deuteronomy 17.15, which reads, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Further, many Jews thought that the Messiah was going to be someone who rose up and created an earthly kingdom. They were ready to rebel, and in particular, rebel against the Roman government. Right around this time that Paul wrote this, the Jews had been starting riots across the empire, which ultimately led to their expulsion from Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, there seems to be some practical things that Paul is addressing and even cautioning against in an effort to protect the early Christians. At the same time, though, readers were also familiar with Paul's earlier statement just a chapter before in Romans 12:2, where he says, do not be conformed to this world. In other letters that Paul wrote, like Philippians, he writes with a similar tone that our citizenship is not on earth, it's in heaven. So Paul seems to be creating this tension between our call to be missional, to be embedded in our communities, but not to conform to the ways of the world, to live counterculturally because of our identity in Christ. We see a call for balance and also begin to see that achieving this balance can be confusing, can require a great deal of effort, but it's important to keep the balance in mind as we look more closely into the passage and its implications. So reading verse 1 again, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Paul's making a few things clear. This, this refers to every believer. No one is exempt from this passage. Governing authorities generally refers to Roman rulers, hence why we're specifically focusing on government today and not other authorities like parents or bosses. He writes that God's authority is above any human authority. In God's sovereignty, he appoints governments, rulers, and leaders. We asked earlier, does God really appoint every government? There's a clear truth in this verse that the answer is yes. God, in his sovereignty, has ordained whoever is in power to rule over us. A few minutes ago, we thought of certain political leaders that abuse their power. It's hard to see that a loving God would allow this. And yet, verse 2 and verse 5 double down. Verse 2 says, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 5 says, One must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Rebellion against the government leads to judgment. We subject a government because it's in good conscience and we face the threat of God's punishment if we do not. I can accept the idea of submission to government if it's what Paul describes in verses 3 and 4. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, conduct, conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He's presenting here the ideal of what a government should be, an entity that rewards good and punishes evil. In fact, the word Paul uses for governing in verse 1 translates as morally better or excellent. I think what Paul is trying to say with this assumption is that, in general, civil government is a blessing from God. Without it, we would be in chaos. There has to be some check on evil and some reward for good. God can use these systems of organization for his good. Generally speaking, I think that's all pretty logical, but it's also tough to swallow because it still does not directly acknowledge governments that will suppress good and inflict evil. In other words, doing exactly the opposite of what they're designed to do. Just years later, the Roman Emperor Nero persecuted and killed many Christians, and not because they were being unlawful. They were simply putting God first by not worshiping the Roman gods. It probably left many of the Roman Christians who had read Paul's letters questioning his logic. So what's going on here? Is Paul naive? Is he in a bubble? So let's think about that. He was a great scholar. He surely knew about the severe, terrible punishments afflicted upon Israel by pagan nations like Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, among others in the Old Testament. He knew about Jesus' crucifixion. Many of the people he was writing to had been exiled from their homes and, homes and businesses because of what they believed. Paul himself was a persecutor of Christians prior to his conversion and was himself persecuted and ultimately killed for his steadfast belief in God ahead of human authority. So this is not because Paul is ignorant. But perhaps he meant this very specifically for the Romans and their immediate situation, and we should not apply these verses beyond that. But that would be in conflict with verses 1 and 2, which states that God is behind every authority, always has been, always will be. I think instead that Paul is likely presenting the norm and a baseline upon which to evaluate our government. It is set up to punish evil and reward good. To the extent that a government is fulfilling this defined purpose, we should comply and be supportive of God's chosen leader. Similarly, recognizing that government is composed of people, we should not flaunt errors in its face, similar to the calls in Romans 12 not to rush to the judgment of our fellow man. 
as in the treatment of our brothers and neighbors described in Romans 12, we should be predisposed toward love and kindness, leading one another toward community and away from evil, and not immediately jumping into complaint, resistance, or even violent protest, even when the party in power is one we don't support. But this still leaves one of our big questions today. If government is not serving its purpose, do we still submit? Going back to verse 1, I want to point out a very important distinction. In using the language subject to, Paul purposely avoids going as far as obey. This distinction is everything in these verses. To submit is to recognize one's place in a hierarchy and acknowledge as a general rule that certain people or institutions have authority. He uses the same words in his other letters to reference spiritual leaders, masters, and prophets. He's calling for a general posture of submission to government. To the extent that this is in conflict with our all-encompassing submission to God, we must actually disobey human authority. To emphasize one thing right here, we must trust God despite the circumstances created by who, who is in authority, even if we are not readily seeing the logic. So if God allows certain rulers, the natural question you are asking yourselves is why? For some of us, simple faith in God's goodness and sovereignty is enough, and that's awesome. There are certain aspects of a relationship with God that require our faith and trust. We reach a point where logic stops. We should all pray daily to be continually transformed to trust God's plan for our lives. But if you're like me, an unanswered why is very unsatisfying. So I wanted to look a lot closer at this to learn a little bit more. And in the Bible, we see that it is a reality that God allows certain rulers, even when they are evil. We saw this time and time again with his people in the Old Testament. There were 42 kings that ruled the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. 28 of them were evil. God explicitly allowed them as punishment for the rebellion of his people. In the book of Judges, there are 13 times where God brings punishment to his people in a repeated cycle of his people rebel. He punishes them with his rulers through retributive judgment. It's followed by their repentance and ultimately they're restored to God. It's observed throughout the Old Testament that left to their own decisions, the Israelites stray from God and follow other earthly idols. They actually originally asked God for a king because they were tired of God being their only authority. They wanted a human authority like all the other people of the world had. His punishments lead them to see their wrongdoing, repent, and be restored. We can discern from these examples that God used evil rulers to inflict his judgment, to enforce the consequences of bad decisions, and to seek repentance. He does all of this because he loves his people and wants them to turn back to him. He knows that left to ourselves, we will naturally rebel against any authority, whether it's him or our human authorities. I think it is correct to ask of God, why? to try and discern the purpose of an evil ruler. And I think sometimes we find answers. Perhaps he is helping us to clearly reveal a sin in ourselves or more broadly in our society. Perhaps he is reminding us that there are consequences to our sin. But I also think of times where the answer is not immediate. I would say that in the microcosm of our individual lives, it is very hard to see God's sovereignty for all of his people. I remember just a small example. I moved to Houston several years ago for work. 
at the time, it was very difficult to see why I had to follow this human authority of my employer, move down here, move away from my family, where I had a great network to a place where I knew nobody. And for two years, I struggled with that. I was having a hard time meeting with people. It was not making sense why God would move me to a different city and then not immediately start to pick up where I left off. But now that I'm a few years later, I cannot imagine my life without Houston being a part of it. Many of you in this room are a part of that. That's just one example that only spans a few years. In many ways, the story of Joseph, which goes beyond a few years, embodies this. At age 17, his brother sold him into slavery in Egypt. Upon being a slave, he actually found favor with his master, Potiphar, and was appointed the head of Potiphar, who was a noble. He was appointed the head of Potiphar's estate. So it seemed like maybe God did have a plan for him. But not long after that, Potiphar's wife wanted to be with Joseph. Joseph refused, did the noble thing, and in return, Potiphar's wife instead told Potiphar that it was Joseph that pursued her. Potiphar was mad. He threw Joseph in prison. Again, likely not feeling like God is on his side this time. But then again, Joseph, through his God-given ability to interpret dreams, first found favor with the head of the prison, and years later found favor with Pharaoh himself, who saw Joseph as the wisest man in his kingdom. He was appointed second in command in all of Egypt. One of Joseph's interpreted dreams that came true was seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. In his foresight and as the head of the government, he prudently saved during the years of plenty. In the times of famine, people from many other lands came to Joseph for food for their families. Among them were Joseph's brothers, the ones that had sold him into slavery. They did not recognize him at first, and why would they? They would never expect this brother they sold into slavery to now be in charge of Pharaoh's kingdom. When Joseph revealed himself, as you can imagine, they were dismayed. They were sure that he was going to seek retribution and punish him. But Joseph was forgiving, knowing that in that moment, his whole life was a testament to the Lord's sovereignty. Genesis 45, 5, 7, and 8, and this is Joseph talking, he says to his brothers, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What an amazing proclamation and evidence of God's plan. Joseph's attitude is one we should try to emulate. His faith never wavered, even when he was sold out by his family, unfairly imprisoned, and later given the chance for revenge. Instead, he just kept pointing everyone to God when he was at both the lowest of lows and highest of highs. This attitude is reinforced in something we studied earlier in Romans a couple of months ago. Romans 8.28 reads that, For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God may have plans to work to bring good out of evil in ways that exceed our understanding. So if we don't always know the answer to the why question, we still have a somewhat more answerable question. What do we do about it? How do we respond to corrupt governments, to persecution of ourselves and of others? This is where we must be very discerning. God's desire for our lives is most clearly revealed in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. In this passage, Jesus is asked by a lawyer 
who's actually trying to trap Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus' answer is that you should love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Focus first on loving God and loving people. Knowing that all the laws depend on this commandment, this is a great test of where and when we should align with the government and its policies. Also noting that we are called to love all people, not just those that agree with us or think like us. Later, following his death and resurrection, Jesus furthered this commandment with the Great Commission, which we find in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority, there's that word, authority, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. So we know from Matthew 22 what he has commanded us, and we know in Matthew 28, in his sovereign authority, he calls us to go and bring this love to others and ultimately discipling and teaching them to do the same. With that in mind, we should be active in seeking to support government to the extent its authority is aligning with God's authority. It is a blessing that our government generally gives us freedom in this commission. However, if a government is ungodly, we should first be asking God for discernment and direction in our response, actually seeking to resist government where it is not aligned for his call for his creation. Thankfully, we have many tremendous examples of people in the Bible who found a balance between submitting to the government in the spirit of Romans 13 without at all reducing God as the overall authority in their lives. We saw one earlier with Joseph, and the story of Daniel, also in the Old Testament, has many parallels to this. Daniel was uh, one of the many Israelites who were in captivity in Babylon. For, as a young man, he quickly rose to the ranks to become the king's most trusted advisor. Actually, in a similar way to Joseph, he had this divine ability to interpret dreams and visions of the kings. Things were good for Daniel for a long time. He was high in power. He was well-respected. He was allowed to worship his God. But one day, the wise men of the king, who were jealous of Daniel, convinced the king to issue a decree that no one could pray to anyone but the king. Daniel ignores the government's authority. He knows that in this case, following the government's authority is in direct opposition to God. So he disobeys human authority and prays to God anyway. The wise men very predictably catch him doing this, and Daniel is sentenced to death in the lion's den. Daniel continues to submit. At no point does he say, well, God, I did everything you said. How are you letting this happen? He accepts that submission to a human authority might end up with a human punishment. Ultimately, though, God does save him. And through Daniel's response of obedience to God, in direct disobedience to the civil government, God was able to reveal his glory to what at the time was the world's most powerful empire. Again, very similar to Joseph. Beyond these Old Testament examples, Paul calls to the example of Jesus in verses 6 and 7. So let's reread those. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. 
Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Before we see how this points to Jesus, I first want to look at the valuable practicality in these verses. If we accept that government is God's servant, as described in verses 3 and 4, it is reasonable to support it through tax payments. The man in authority may be unworthy, but the institution is not. Particularly in Greek and Roman cities, many public servants were carrying out their duties on their own accord, meaning that fundraising was crucial to the success of their programs. Without this money, they couldn't do their job. Paul is giving Christians a command to step into society and help where they can. The system is there for a reason. Today, there are many schools of thought on levels of taxation and the use of that money. The debate and discourse over how much, and specifically for what purpose, are likely too numerous. They are too numerous to cover in this sermon. But I will say that these verses reveal we are to be a part of the discourse in determining these things. There's a requirement of faith in the institution even when it wavers. We do this more out of obedience to God than how we feel about a certain government, to the positive or negative. So having said all that, you might be wondering, how do taxes point to Jesus? So to help with that, we're going to turn to Matthew 22, verses 20 through 22, where Jesus is, is essentially asked this question, should we pay taxes? And his response is this, and he's looking at a coin when he says this, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and went away. So the question that Jesus is making us ask here is, whose image is on us? All of our life belongs to God, no matter what we give of our earthly possessions, whether we're taxed 100% or 0%. How is that possible? Because we have one who has already done it. Not only has Jesus shown us the example, but he's given us his identity. We give our lives to God because they're already his, just as we give to our government what they by law say is theirs. Peter is reinforcing these concepts of identity in verses 6 and 7. He wants the readers to think of Jesus when reading this. So we've been through this passage in some detail, covered a lot of ground. I just want to quickly summarize. All authority is from God. No man has any power over other men other than what is given by God. Further, not only is government appointed by God, but the form by which it exists and the people who implement it are also from God and within his will. This can be hard to accept, but we are subject to authority, whether legitimate, just, or otherwise. He gives us a command to submit to authority. Why? Because he has appointed these rulers and there are consequences to not doing so. Since God has appointed the human ruler, rebelling against such authority is rebelling against God. Those with this attitude will bring judgment on themselves. However, the extent of our obedience is case by case. Obey within the authority of the position. Teachers are not to be obeyed as if they were parents. Parents are not to be obeyed as if they're kings. Kings are not to be obeyed as if they're God. To emphasize, there's a key difference between subjection and obedience. Whenever obedience to human authority is inconsistent with obedience to God, disobedience is our duty. 
We should not confuse God's sovereign appointment with, of a leader with a direct order to follow each and every policy of that leader at any cost. It's actually the opposite. Knowing how governments have abused power should make us grimace and recoil at the pain that they have caused as our hearts break for the people hurt by them. God's greatest commandment is to love him and to love people. Anything in opposition to these things should test our conscience and lead to action. Whether on behalf of people who need justice or even in direct opposition to a government or both. As I warned in the intro, the relationship between people and their government is philosophical. And if everything up to this point has felt that way, I understand. But if you're going to hear one thing, please listen for the next few minutes, as this is something that has helped me see more clearly how and why we balance the submission to earthly and godly authority. Jesus exemplified this balance, and I'm thankful to Peter for pointing me in this direction. In 1 Peter 2, another passage that just happens to be titled Submission to Authority, he writes, and this should sound familiar, and I paraphrase it first, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for this is the will of God. Honor everyone, love God, honor the emperor, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. And then verses 21 and 23 expand upon what we've seen in 13, 1 through 7. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what is Peter referring to here? Let's flip to John 19, and we'll be starting with verse 10, where we see Jesus, while facing death, place God's will above his own in submitting to a human authority. I had read this passage before, I was familiar with the story, but I had not seen it in the light of Romans 13, and it just blows me away. In John 19, Jesus had been delivered by the Jews to Pilate, who was himself a very corrupt and evil ruler. The Jews want to crucify him. At first, Pilate sees no guilt in Jesus, and this makes sense. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Any logical person can see that. As the Jews pressure Pilate more, he actually tries to get Jesus to give him a reason one way or another, some sort of justification to get him off the hook, saying, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In other words, Jesus, why aren't you pleading for your life? Because I think you've got a point. Jesus' response packs so much. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus knows that he's going to his death. He places God's will above his own, despite his power to change his circumstances. It's not just a divine power. Had he spoken up here, Pilate might have released him. From an earthly perspective, his death is so wrong that Pilate, who probably doesn't really care about Jesus, has to be convinced by Jesus himself to allow Jesus to die. Before succumbing, and this is evidence because before succumbing to the Jewish mob, he tries five or six times to tell the Jews he finds no fault and can't figure out what their problem is. 
With this act of submission to his father, Jesus was simultaneously submitting to human authorities who wanted him dead. He loved us so much that he stepped forward in a posture of obedience into an unjust death so that we may be justified before the Father. We can trust and accept him as our Savior because he first loved us, he faced injustice, and he still submitted. We, thankfully, may not be called to ever have to come close to suffering like this, but we should be transformed, we should be inspired to model our lives with this attitude. I know that I always feel like I should be more in control, that I should be an authority of my life. I am the authority in my life. I know what's best for me. Submission to a government authority seems to me to be placing hopes, beliefs, paths, outcomes in the hands of people who we know are flawed sinners just like us. Our leaders are supposed to be the best of us, and then we observe them being just as fallen as everybody else. We're really just setting ourselves up for disappointment in a lot of ways. So, I and we often pick and choose who we're willing to listen to and follow, which generally means people we agree with or from whom we can benefit. In this way, there's actually a pretty strong argument for putting our faith in God. He is perfect. He loves us. He has our salvation as his priority. He's the best person that we can trust. We should work hardest to align our purpose with his. But this does not get us off the hook. This does not mean that we simply ignore earthly authorities. Rather, we should take an active role. Ask, what is good about our government? Am I taking anything for granted? Also ask, what about our government is not aligning with God's purpose for me and for all of creation? Study his word and seek answers to these questions. Pray that he reveals where and how we are meant to interact with our authorities, further their just causes, and stand up for those experiencing injustice. We must work, and it's an active word, work to overcome evil with good. As Heath said last week, the Lord will lead us to a point of taking action, which might even include death. This is very risky, but it is our purpose, and it is worth it. I want to thank you guys a lot for your time and attention today. In a minute, Heath is going to lead us in communion. Uh, but first, I just want to pray through some of these things and emphasize that there are some questions in here that in the moment are left unanswered, but we are called to explore those answers and seek where we can be active in addressing some of them together. So if you would just bow your heads with me as I close. God, we do love you and we're thankful for the example of your son that we can lean into your word and study these questions and answers more closely. I pray specifically for your revelation that we can see authority as being from you, being far more than a nuisance for us to tolerate, that it accomplishes some of your purpose on earth. At the same time, let us not put ourselves or our leaders in a position that only you can hold. We are thankful for a government that provides order, safety, and organizes for the public good. In that thankfulness, we pray for our leaders that you would grant them your wisdom and help them to see the world as you do. Prepare our hearts to serve and help where we can. 
Help us to evaluate all positions, statements, and claims in light of the gospel. Where there are voids left by our government, lead us forward in direct obedience to your commands throughout the Bible and specifically in Matthew 22. Let us continue this discussion individually in our transformation groups and really with everyone in our lives so that we can better refine it, define what it means for us individually and as a church community, and learn from one another. We recognize that it may not always go well for us in life, but we see this call to love and live with urgency, knowing it could go badly for someone or for us tomorrow. We want you to expand our view of your purpose in our lives. We pray for joy, even where we run into corruption and injustice. We pray for a peace that surpasses understanding, knowing that you are the same God who has appointed these rulers, who loves each and every one of us, and who submitted his son to the world, a sacrifice so that we may have fullness of joy and eternal life with you. Amen.